Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, if you wouldn't mind taking your Bibles and opening them to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 25. If you took one of the red Bibles in the back, it's on page 934. You're going to need your Bibles today because we are going to be uh, going through two chapters of Acts. We're going to get through two chapters this week, Lord willing, two chapters next week, and we will finish it the week before I leave. <laughs> We're going to do it. So, uh, and then the final week, we'll summarize some things here. And, uh, but today, in order to get through two chapters, I'm actually going to be reading most of it and then making some applications. I'll explain it here in a little bit. But, uh, but these two chapters are very powerful chapters, and it's really one account, and we need to just see the whole account together. Uh, it'll be helpful for us. Um, and I was thinking as we are, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up this transition in our life from being pastor, teacher here at Kishwaukee to missionary, uh, I realized, you know, we're not, uh, you know, this isn't going to be the last few Sundays I ever preach from this pulpit. I'll be back again, and it isn't going to be the last time we walk through the doors of this church after a couple weeks from, from now. We'll be back through several times a year, Lord willing. But, um, but of course, it's the last time is in this role. And, uh, and I was thinking, you know, what, what do you say? And, and I realized I, I didn't want to just say it all, you know, in a couple of weeks. I want to kind of uh, filter it out here over the next several weeks just to say, hey, w- what would be my heart? And I was thinking about the fact that... Um, in the 13 years that I've been here, uh, a lot's changed in our world. A lot's changed. It's a different world. I mean, September 11th changed things, but that wasn't the only change in the world. A lot has happened. And it's a different world than, than it was 13 years ago. And, and some of those changes are, 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 are not happy changes. Right? We've seen lots of things go on that, that can be upsetting or disconcerting and, and hard to deal with. And... Uh, and I realized something, you, you know, each week you, you get up here to preach, and, and, and it isn't just an exercise in, in uh, showing you what you learned this week, right? It's not a, I don't see this every, every week as a book report. I see this as an opportunity to challenge you and to get you to be thinking and, and living Christianly in this world. And I was thinking, what is it that, you're, that we will need as we live in this world today and, 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 and going ahead over the next 13 years? And I realized that one of the things that I want to make sure that I leave you with in this role, one of the challenges that I want to make sure that is important to us as, as a church, is that, that you would live and that we would live boldly. I think there's going to be a need for boldness in this world. I think that, that, that all the more as things shift and we find ourselves on the hostile end of things, on the hostile ends of what you believe, the, the hostile ends of your convictions, that, that, that you will walk into a room and not be given a seat at the table, but instead kicked out of the room because of your positions and the things you believe and the convictions that you have. You're going to have to be bold. We're going to have to be bold. And, and, and we're going to have to start thinking about the type of boldness we used to only think about when people were going out to be missionaries. When people were going out to, you know, hostile climates and crossing borders and going into to areas where you say, wow, pray for these missionaries. It's, they're going amongst headhunters and those people could kill them and, and it will be tough. And, and, 
And the reality is that, that I'm not being a prophet of doom here, but I'm just saying that the way that it's going, we're getting on the hostile end of things. And it might not be that you're going to get your head cut off this week, but it could be that you could be way more uh, attacked verbally and shunned at family meetings and somebody tosses something out at a 4th of July party and you might say, well, I don't know, I think this. And whoa, you might find yourself on the receiving end of a lot of flack. And what's going to be needed? Boldness. Yet boldness is not something that comes natural to us. And, and how, do, how do we become bold? How do you stand true? You know, Paul could have gotten himself out of this mess that he was in right now that we're studying here in Acts where he's on jail. He could have got himself out with a bribe. He could have got himself out with a threat of a lawsuit. He had many options to get out of this situation that he was in, but he stayed there because he knew God wanted him to proclaim the gospel in Rome and that the path was going to be through being arrested. And he stayed faithful and bold amongst people who were trying to kill him for that boldness. I read those stories. I remember as a kid reading those stories thinking, I could never do that. I remember, I think I know I've shared this with you in the past, I remember in Sunday school hearing the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and I remember thinking in my, my mind, I don't know, maybe I was nine years old, and I remember thinking, wow, if I had to like, you know, get faced with this moment of bowing down before the king or get thrown in a furnace, I would just cross my fingers behind my back and then bow down to the king, and then it wouldn't count, you know, because my fingers were crossed, you know, if you know what I'm talking about, that kids, we used to say that. Fingers were crossed means I'm not, it doesn't count. And then that way I wouldn't have to deal with the furnace, but I wouldn't disobey God either. Like I was trying to figure out ways of how do you do this and not be bold? But yet we don't have to do that. I think in the passage before us today is something that I want to make sure that we get, and it's my heart for us, and, uh, and I want us to see this, and it's about how Paul was bold and why he was bold. And I want us to see it because as Paul is on trial, he gives testimony about what happened between him and Jesus. And it's a story we've already studied. It's a story of his conversion. Yet in the midst of this story, this conversion, there's some things I want you to see. And I think if you see these things and embrace these things and really think about it, talk about it after church today, really engage it, I think it will be the types of things that would give you boldness. And it's something that my heart, as I'm thinking about our church and the future, what I would pray for is that we would be bold. So I want to show this to you today. So here's what we're going to do. we got two chapters. So I'm going to read through these two chapters. We're not going to have it up on the screen because it's just too much for the sly guy to be, be sliding through. So you can just follow along. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read through... And, and every once in a while, I'm just going to stop and explain to you what's happening there in the story, just because sometimes there's things written in a way, and you go, what just happened? And I'm just going to insert some comments along the way. And this is just the trial of Paul. That's the trial. And, and I'm just going to make some comments, and if there's some things in there that would be helpful, you could write them down there in the notes under the trial of Paul. And then we're going to look at the testimony of Paul. And we're going to zero in on that testimony, and I'm going to make three observations and in those three observations, in, in my opinion, they become the seedbed of boldness. And I want you to see those things and, and take, take them to heart. But let's begin, okay, and look at the trial of Paul. And so just to set the context, 
He's been in prison, house arrest, for a couple of years now. The Jews accused him of defiling Jewish law, defiling the temple. Uh, you, you know, they accused him of, of, of this being this, you know, this rabble rouser, and the, and the Jews wanted Paul to be executed by the Romans. The Romans did not find that there was any cause for him to be executed, and so they just kind of have him in this holding pattern because they don't want to upset the Jews, the Roman government, but they also don't want to push Paul any further. And so there's just, he's kind of stuck in limbo, going nowhere. And, uh, and so now a new leader has taken over in the Roman government, so the trial's going to start all over again. Everything's got to happen again. New guy's taken over, and, and, and so now they're, they're kind of starting at square one again. And that's where we are here in chapter 25. So I'm going to begin here in 25, verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning on an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said... Let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought in. So Festus replaced this guy, Felix. These guys oversee Israel. Just, just the, 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 the country of Israel. They're kind of the leader, the governor of that. Felix died. Festus steps in. Festus is the new leader. He goes down to Jerusalem. These guys say, hey, bring Paul. Paul's Because they want to kill Paul. They have this ambush set up. Festus, I think, knows that they want to kill him because everyone knew. And uh, the word was out. And so he said, no, we're keeping them in Caesarea. If you guys got charges, come up and bring them. Okay, so that's what's happening here. So now they're all going to come up. Jewish leadership are coming up. Court case is happening. Okay, <clears throat> verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem there and be tried on the charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to these charges against me, uh, no one can give, up, give me up to them. Now here's the key. I appeal to Caesar. Mark that. This is key to the whole story. Key, key part of the story. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Okay, so I think you see what's going on. They make charges. They can't substantiate him. Paul says, I didn't do any of this. And he said, well, this guy's saying, I think this is like an inside Jewish theological debate. Why don't you go back to Jerusalem? No. They want me dead? Then I appeal to Caesar. When he says, I appeal to Caesar, he's asking basically to go to the Supreme Court. I want to go up to the final court. I want this settled once for all. But once you appeal to Caesar, you start a judicial process in motion. Now just store that in your brain. It will 
become important later. Let's keep rolling here. Verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice, that's his sister, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. I have a feeling that probably went more like, man, Felix really left me this problem. Right? You didn't clean this up. It's probably how the conversation really went. Verse 15, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning a charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat at the tribunal. <clears throat> he's lying there, by the way. It was eight days. Um, but he's trying to make himself look good. I took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charges, charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute within them about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor... I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself tomorrow. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Agrippa is one step above Festus. So Agrippa is a regional leader. He's got other countries like Syria, places like that, moving up into Turkey a little bit. He's a regional guy. You get the name King because he's a little bit bigger regional area. So he comes in to town, Festus lays his problem before him. Agrippa says, I'll hear the case. So now Paul's got to go to trial again. The whole thing's got to happen all over again. Okay, so now let's look at how this trial plays out. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, that's his sister, came up with great pomp. Right? Luke wants to just let us know. I mean, they're coming in. They got the whole showboat going. I mean, this thing's in motion. And, uh, and so they're just coming in. They got everybody. They got the trumpets. They got military. They got the whole bit. Everyone's going to know Agrippa's in town. Okay? So they came up with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and, and the prominent men of the city. Right? Everybody wants to hang out with this guy. Then, now, so just stop. Paul and I was, this is who he's going to talk in front of, by the way. So this is a big, big audience he's got. All the dignitaries are in town for this trial. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the, the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appeared, appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore... I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. No duh. Okay. You could see his problem. He wants to appeal to the Supreme Court, but he's done nothing wrong. Okay. He's on trial for a crime he did not commit. And there is no crime here. There's nothing here other than a theological dispute. How in the world can I send him to Caesar, Caesar 
We didn't do anything wrong. You know, so this is so so you guys gotta help me here, is what Festus is saying. Okay, so now, chapter 26. Okay, story starts to unfold. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today. Agrippa has Jewish roots, and he knows Judaism, and he's been involved. He's had some Jewish training, and he's well-known among some of the Jewish theologians. And he's done some study and research. Uh, Extra-biblical sources say that he was very well-versed and really sympathetic to Judaism. So Paul is standing going, I am so pumped that I'm standing before you. Okay, that's the contemporary vernacular. Okay, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nations and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to their strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul said, my first thing you need to know, I was a Pharisee. I was like them. They know this. Some of these guys are the guys that appointed me to this. They're not telling you that, that I started like them. But I, I'm like them. Okay, so that's his first statement. Verse 6, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, that might seem a bit complex. What he's saying here is, we have hoped for a Messiah. We have hoped for the law of God to be written upon our hearts. We have a hope for a new heart, a heart of flesh that would beat for God. We had hoped that God would sprinkle clean water upon us and renew us and regenerate us. Like All that's the hope of the Old Testament. And I'm standing here because I've been hoping for that too. And I believe it came because Jesus rose from the dead. Now why do you think God is not powerful enough to raise someone from the dead? The question here isn't that I'm creating a new religion. I've been hoping for what we've been hoping for. I just believe it came through the resurrection of Jesus. Why is this so hard for anyone to think that God couldn't raise someone from the dead? Right? That's, that's his defense. Look at verse 9. He's going to go on and explain how he got there. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I was just like these guys. You know, these guys have been chasing me around <laughs> trying to kill me. I used to do that. I hated Jesus, and I hated anyone who followed Jesus. Anybody who said Jesus rose from the dead, I was the first one to say, kill him. Okay, so, so you say, I, I get it. It's amazing. He's got this sympathy for these guys. But he's saying, I was one of them. Okay, verse 12. 
In this connection, <clears throat> I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, we're going to unpack that in a minute. So we're just going to leave that there. The point you need to know is that Paul said, I was going to Damascus to kill people, and at noon, the brightest time of the day, a light shone brighter than the sun, and it dropped us all to the ground. Okay, and, 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 and these, guys, these guys are probably still alive who were with Paul and witnessed this. They can go check this out. And he's saying, that's what stopped me and convinced me that Jesus was alive. When Jesus blinded me, dropped me to the ground, started talking to me, and suddenly I realized, oh, he's alive. And then he commissioned me to go to the Gentiles to offer them the hope of life and forgiveness and all of that. Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with the repentance. He makes that little point there, saying, I never challenge anyone to live against the law. Challenge them to repent. Start walking for God, living for God, following God. Right? This is an anti-law here. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being uh, the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And he's saying, that's what the Old Testament teaches. That's what I've been proclaiming. Now, look at Festus's response to this. It's very funny. And as he was saying, verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe, right? Festus says, man, you're not. You're crazy. He says, no, I'm not. King, you know this, right? I could just see Paul. I know you know this. I know you believe this, right? He's telling him this. He's begging him. I know you got this, king. I know you believe. Don't back down now. Be brave. Be bold. Tell me you believe me, right? He's like going after him. Paul's boldness is coming out and he's trying to pull boldness out of Agrippa. It's an amazing moment, right? Because Agrippa appears to maybe be sitting back. 
And Paul is saying, this is, lean into this, Agrippa. I know you know this, right? Amazing moment. Agrippa is like a big deal. Saying this to this guy, it's a big deal. Verse 28, Agrippa, very, very measured answer. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? Now, the ESV, that's a rough translation. I think there's maybe a little clearer way you could say that. It basically would be translated this way. You've almost convinced me. I'm close. I'm close. And, and he's saying, listen, it's just a little bit, just a few more minutes, and I think you'll have me, would be another way you could say this. In just a few more minutes, I think you'd have me. Paul says in verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. <laughs> I, I hope you all are where I am, except in jail. Okay, <laughs> like, I want you to believe. I want you to believe. Verse 30, then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting there with him, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, look, look at this, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. He's innocent. <clears throat> Verse 32, and Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. <laughs> oh, the words you wish you could have back. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I got to send him. He made the appeal to go to Caesar. He's got to go. That's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? There's boldness all over this thing. How does he get it? What is it that makes you bold? What is it that makes Paul get in Agrippa's face? Say, man, you believe this? Come on. I mean, to be the only guy alone, like you're standing there, you've got a bunch of people in a room who are saying, I, I want to kill you. I want you dead. You got another guy in the room going, you're crazy. This Jesus stuff is crazy. You're just speaking crazy talk. There is nothing rational about this. So you've got the full spectrum from kind of academic persecution, you're crazy, this is just nonsense talk, silly talk, to real physical persecution. If Paul walked out of that space today, those Jews would have killed him. God had Paul appeal to Caesar to keep him alive so he could go to Rome because there is no way, apart from being in jail, that Paul could have ever gone to Rome. He's got 30 men who took a vow to kill him. They got one mission in life, to take him down. That's it. That's what they want. This jail is a protection so he could fulfill his mission. But how does Paul stand bold in that? Well, I want to look now at the testimony of Paul. Kind of our second point here. There's just three things I want to focus in on as Paul shares what happened in his life. Just three passages out of this text here that I think are important to look at. Um, it's in chapter 26. And, and basically, there are three things that, that we learn about the conversion of Paul. And I want to tell you what the direct point is. And then I want to show you a principle from that point. And, I want to, and, and as we draw the principle from the point, I want to show you how that, that I think, feeds boldness. So here's the first principle, or the first uh, point here, and it's in verse 14. 
There in verse 14, remember Paul says, um, he was thrown to the ground and he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now here's the point. The point is this, rebellion is a direct assault against Jesus. He's trying to persecute the, the Jew or the Christians and Jesus is saying, you're persecuting me. Okay, so there's, there's the point of the story, right? But there's a principle embedded in that point, and the principle is this, that when you're in Christ, you have union with Jesus. You have union with Jesus. You know, being in Christ isn't just believing a message in an academic sense. It's actually being in union with him. And so when Paul was attacking Christians, he was attacking Jesus because you get the very life of Jesus when you are in Christ. I don't know if we actually think about that when we walk around. Like, I don't know if you get up every day thinking, I'm actually in Christ. He's actually in me. I mean, we are, we are connected. We are one. When you realize that, that you are, are fully in union with Christ, then you never want to go back to the old way. I don't think Paul was ever tempted to go back to Phariseeism because he's experienced the union of being in Christ. Now let me explain this to you. Let me illustrate this for you. Before I got married, I lived in a house with five guys. And uh, four other guys. I was the fifth guy. Five guys living in one house. And one bathroom, five guys. Two bedrooms, unfinished basement. So there were just three beds in this unfinished basement. I was one of the guys down in the basement. And uh, living in a house with five guys is quite an experience. You get used to certain odors, and you get used to certain standards of cleanliness, right? Five guys have a certain standard that uh, five girls would never have, okay? And, uh, and, but you live there, and you get used to it. And, uh, and then I got married, and I moved out of that house and moved in with Heather. Now we're living together. And I discovered that, like, salad actually has lettuce in it, right? Like it wasn't Doritos, right? To me, a salad was like a bowl of Doritos. And, and, uh, and I actually like whole meals with every part of the meal. She'd pack me a lunch and I would have like a, a sandwich that was healthy. It wasn't just bread and peanut butter and crammed in. And that was about it. Uh, I got a sandwich and I got an apple and a granola bar and water, a bottle of water. It was, it was like, wow. And the smells, right? They were great, Okay. And, 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 and I lived in this basement with three other guys that was unfinished. And I don't know what diseases I'm going to have when I'm 60 as a result of living in that basement. But there was no radon stuff. There was any, I mean, who knows what was down there? What molds I've ingested? I don't know. But this is... So, so I moved from that house of five guys into this house with Heather. So then one day, one of the guys calls me from the house and he says, Hey, Lustin. Don't you miss the guy's house? And I went, no! I never want to go back there ever again. This is incredible what I have. I don't want to go back there. Not only is the house awesome and not only is the food great, I'm in union with Heather. Why would I want to walk away from her and live in a basement with you? makes no sense. It's the dumbest question you've ever asked. Okay, what's the point of the story? I don't know. 
You gotta put up with me now. Only two more weeks of these silly stories though. Here's the point of the story. Once you're in union and you experience that union, you don't ever want to go back. This is, this is, this, nothing, there is not one, there's never been, even at, at any moment in time in our marriage, maybe at the, 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 you know, a point of conflict, did I ever think, well, I could always go back to the guy's house? Never crossed my mind. Never crossed my mind. Why? I'm in union with Heather, and I'm living in this awesome, incredible place. And it's great. And this is what we have. This is Christ. I think Paul realized, God has changed my heart. And his spirit has taken up residency in me. I never want to go back to life without that. I never want to go back. Now, the point of the story is that he's, as he's attacking the Jews, or the Christians, he's attacking Jesus, but then Paul meets Jesus. And the next thing you know, he doesn't just talk about faith as just being something you just believe. He starts saying, you're in Christ. You're raised up with Christ. You're seated with Christ. You're in Christ. He keeps saying it over and over and over again. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He starts realizing, I have a union with Jesus. And until you start processing your Christian life that way, I don't know if you'll ever be bold. And the guy's house will always be a temptation. You'll always be called back. But Paul was not called back. He could have easily stepped back and manipulated those Pharisees and gotten out of the pressure, but he didn't because being in Christ, dying for Jesus is better than living for the law. Way better. He knows that. Second observation I want to make, that repentance leads to a calling, and there's a principle, a new purpose. Now look at verse 16 of chapter 26. Jesus is talking to Paul. He says, but rise up and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to these things in which you have seen in me, seen me and to those in which I will appeal to, appear to, delivering you from your people, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now Paul's saying, this, I got my calling. I got my calling to go to the Gentiles. I got my calling to know God's going to protect me. I got this calling to know that I can go out and proclaim Jesus and, and give him this message. You see, when Jesus appeared to Paul, he wasn't just appearing Paul to save him, just so that Paul could then just say, I'm saved now. Guess what? I'm going to heaven. I believe the right things. I got my doctrine right. Okay, that's bad doctrine. Now I'm in the place of good doctrine. And, and now I'm happy because I'm in the place of right doctrine. All of that was so that he could be on mission. And one of the amazing things about repentance, for Paul, he had to turn from attacking Christ to now serving Christ. And the reality is that my conversion wasn't any different. I wasn't killing Christians, but I was just as gossipy about people and, and attacking people, and I had just the same amount of Stuff going on, and, and not only did I have to repent from not following Jesus, I had to start following Jesus. And I have a call, and you have a call. And Paul isn't the only person with a call. And the realization that our purpose in life is to make the glory of Christ known wherever we are and whatever we're doing supersedes everything then. You know, our theme verse at our church is, your chosen race, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, 1 Peter 2.9, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. That becomes the superseding reality. When I lose that purpose, then what happens is that my purposes start to, to become the reason why I get up in the morning. And then when trials happen and, and throw me off my purposes, then I'm all messed up. I'm messed up with God and I'm messed up with life. Right? You get thrown off the horse, what happens? They're, oh man, this is tough. Because you see, I thought my life was going to go like this. I thought my marriage was going to go like this. I thought my kids were going to act this way. I thought this was going to happen. I thought that was going to happen. And the next thing you know, we're living for those expectations. And never in life do your expectations come true. Rarely. Rarely, right? What, I don't know what percentage it is, but, but it's pretty low. Pretty low. But then if all of a sudden I realize, wait a minute, my purpose is to make Christ known, then what happens, and I'll tell you what happens to me. I get knocked off the horse. The first thing that happens is I have a little internal pity party. I internalize it, and then Heather gets it. It's a gift to her, and, uh, and, and, I, and I begin to go through this little pity party. But then eventually something clicks in my brain. This trial is supposed to exist so that Christ could be made known, and then I have to repent, and I have to say, God, how can this moment be used to make you known? Now I'm telling you, it's a journey to get there for me. It doesn't come first for me. So I don't want to stand up here and tell you something that I could say, oh, it just happens right away. No, I go through my journey. But eventually, 1 Peter 2.9 pops into my brain. And eventually I have to say, this is here for a reason. God, you're going to use this to make your glory known. Because you see, being in Christ means I have a new purpose, and that new purpose is to make Christ known. What, with whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm at, whatever the situation. Paul is in prison. I think he knows he's going to be protected. I think he knows that he's going to go to Rome. I think he knows that he's going to be arrested, that, that he's probably going to lose his life. I think he's aware of all that. God made it clear. But he also knows that he can make the glory of Christ known. And so he can stand there at that moment instead of saying, man, it really stinks to be in jail. This isn't what I thought for my life when I was a kid. These weren't my dreams. These weren't my vision. He just said, all right. If prison is the way I make Christ known, then prison is the way I make Christ known. Right? If, if your job stinks and you thought 20 years ago you'd be in a different place, then you know what? A stinky job is the way God is going to use you to make Christ known. It's what it is. It's our purpose in life. It's Paul's purpose, all our purposes. Repentance leads to a new calling. Let's go on to the third point here. I think I spelled it wrong. It should be repentance transforms our life right now. Not transfers, transforms. That was my bad. Repentance transforms our lives right now. What's the principle? A new path for change. Look at verse 18 there, 26. Paul, he says, I want you to go to the Gentiles because I want you to go to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I want you to go to people who are steeped in darkness, steeped in sin, and I want you to bring the message of me, Paul. This is what Jesus is saying. Because when you bring the message of me, it brings light. And all of a sudden, it takes the darkness away. And they're, they're in, in, you know, enclosed in sin, and now they can be, the power of Satan can be broken in their life, and they can be under the power of God. And then they can begin to walk by faith and as they begin to walk by faith and be totally committed and living for me, 
They can be transformed or sanctified. Sanctified means transform, change. You know, it's amazing. All of us want to change, and, and sometimes we think to ourselves, well, you know, maybe if I had a different job, things in my life would go better, and I wouldn't be so grumpy, right? Maybe if my kids obeyed a little bit better, I wouldn't be so angry. Maybe if my spouse did this and met me here because they're not me, I would... And one of the things that we end up doing when we think that way is we end up thinking that change comes from our circumstances, right? If you look better, better self-image, you know, people obey more, whatever, you know, whatever you want to lay out there, that that circumstance is going to lead towards a change. The reality is that change doesn't come from that. Change comes from following Jesus. And he said, I want you to go to the Gentiles and tell them that because when they begin to follow me and they trust in me all the days of their life and they begin to start saying, I believe you got a purpose here, God. I believe, Jesus, you're in my life. I believe you're in control. And they begin to start living that way. They begin to change. This is why he says they're sanctified by faith. They're transformed. I don't know if there's any boldness until, in our lives until we get that. Till we recognize that in Jesus you're delivered, in Jesus you're forgiven, in Jesus you're transformed. And it comes from following him. Saying, okay, God, I want to live this new purpose. So, let me sum it up here. Boldness in Paul. Where did it come from? Kind of just the conclusion here. Paul understood that he was now in union with Jesus. When he learned that he, when he was killing these Christians that he was persecuting Jesus, he realized there is a union between Jesus and his church that is just oneness. That is an amazing thing. Second, since Jesus is his life, he gets a new purpose, right? Because if you become one with Jesus, you become one with his purpose. You do. You, you, you suddenly now realize Jesus is going to the world Telling people, man, you can be set free and transformed and, 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 and I want you to know my glory and who I am. And, and once you get in with him, that's what you're doing now. That's your purpose. The third thing for Paul, since Paul had union with Jesus and a new purpose, he has a new path for the way he changes. Change isn't going to come when everybody does what I tell them to do. You realize tomorrow, if everybody gets up and does exactly what you say, from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, everywhere you go, if you're first in line, there's no traffic, everything happens, you get a raise, you come home, somebody pays off your mortgage, right? If all that stuff happens, you do realize that you'd still be the exact same person you were before you got up. And the same things are going to make you mad. You're going to have the same response because the only thing that changes is the power of Jesus and being in union with him. You have that, you have boldness. So, here's how I want to challenge us as a church. In the fall, you guys are going to go through a self-assessment process. And I would like for you to think about this self-assessment process personally before you think about it institutionally. The self-assessment process isn't just a process to list what kind of chairs you think we should have or better ways to do Sunday school or you know, I wish Jeff would pray this way when he prays on a Sunday or whatever. It's not an institutional assessment. 
It's an assessment of how we as a church are fulfilling the mission for which God has, a, has called us to fulfill. And the only way that that's going to begin is by us bringing our life before Christ and saying, do I live as if I'm in union with Jesus? And do I live as if making his name known is my central purpose? And do I really think that the change is going to come if my circumstances change? And so I keep trying to change my circumstances and instead of walking by faith and following Jesus? The self-assessment has to begin today by us aligning ourselves, I think, to these principles. Because it doesn't matter if we design the perfect church if we're not living this way. It doesn't matter if we fix all our problems if in my heart I'm not getting up every day saying, I live for you, I'm in union with you, and I live to make you known, and I just want to follow you, believing that in your spirit you'll change me and sanctify me and, and and if that isn't my goal, then it doesn't really matter institutionally what we do. So I just want to put that challenge out to you because my heart and, what, and, and the legacy I hope that is left behind is a bold church, a bold church that can stand firm in the midst of this changing world. So I want to pray now for us here. So join me in prayer. Father, I, I am amazed at Paul's boldness, and yet I know it's a result of being in union with you, being a result of believing this message that, that he is to proclaim and, and to make his, your name known and, and having been changed himself from a murderer to someone who loves people. Lord, help us to do that assessment in our own hearts first and to assess where our walk is with you. Show us the areas where we're walking as if we're not in union with you. Show us the areas where our agenda rules over your agenda. Show us the areas where we're trying to change everyone around us and not bring our life before you. Show us those areas, God. And Lord, we don't want to just change. I'm not praying this just so that we would be better people. I'm praying this so we would be bold people because I believe that we're going to need boldness in this world that we're living in. So God, please raise up a bold church for your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, Bible.org.